Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. There is a war going on over the best way to teach kids. Four. Covid is the, the golden gift to excuses. Three. I've lived through a number of brilliant <laughs> whoppers. And so I assume as a baseline that governments are lying and incompetent. Two. One of our children said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> it was actually this year. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm right. Actually, I'm Boris Johnson. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast this week minus co-pilot Halligan. Liam has parachuted into the Aegean Sea for a well-earned break from my hospital bed occupancy data. I'm joined today on the Rocket of Right Thinking by the Telegraph's own Tim Stanley, columnist and leader writer extraordinaire. As well as being a leading conservative thinker, Tim is the devoted servant of Bertie, the King Charles pandemic puppy, and one of the very few people to appear on Radio 4's Thought for the Day who doesn't make you want to run out screaming from the room. Welcome aboard, Tim. Hello. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. We can start the podcast with some good news. Children in England, Wales and Northern Ireland are twice as clever as they were in 2019. A-level results soared this year, with almost 50% of papers getting an A or an A-star. As Tim observed in his Telegraph column, it seems the less time a child spends in school, the better they do. (laughs) Despite concerns over rampant grade inflation, Gavin Williamson, the legendary fireplace salesman and marginally less lauded Secretary of State for Education, defended the results, saying students deserve to be rewarded after a year of disruption. Professor Andrew Pollard told a select committee of MPs this week that as the virus was now endemic, mass testing of healthy people should be wound down and only those who are unwell should be swabbed. Professor Pollard also admitted that herd immunity is not possible with the Delta variant because it can still infect vaccinated people. Both your co-pilots are wondering how the government can possibly justify the introduction of vaccine passports when vaccinated people can get the virus and also give it to others, just like unvaccinated people. As the COVID panic was starting to calm down, the climate change panic was warming up. Code red for humanity, screamed the headlines after a report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change claimed that humans are unequivocally to blame for global warming. We will soon be in hotter water than the Duke of York if we don't cut our carbon emissions. Not only are we toast, the Prime Minister's COP26 spokesperson, Allegra Stratton, suggested that Britons should avert Armageddon by not rinsing their toast plates before putting them in the dishwasher. Can I just say to Planet Normal listeners that I'm not going to stop rinsing my toast and marmalade plate to be environmentally responsible when Boris is about to have his seventh child. (laughs) Tim Stanley, let's start with the hot potato with exam grades, which you wrote about this week. Tim, do you agree with Gavin Williamson that kids deserve to be rewarded after such an awful year? No, it's one of the silliest things I've ever heard, and it makes a mockery of exams, and it makes a mockery of British education. By the way, I have to ask, can you imagine what it must feel like if you got a B this year? Oh, yes. I know. Given how exceptionally easy it was to get an A, what does your B mean? And that's the point, that when you hand out grades as uh, cheerfully and as plentifully and as generously Mm. as this, it makes a mockery of everyone. It insults everyone. It insults everyone who came before, because the implication is that uh, if only they had had the good fortune to have taken their exams a couple of years later, they would have got a better grade. And it insults everyone who comes after, because 
What Gavin Williamson is saying is that this inflation effectively was necessary to paper over the crack caused by the lockdown. So when the lockdown is over, I infer we will go back to lower grades. So then that's an insult to anyone who takes their exams two or three years time from now, because they're going to be examined more harshly than this cohort were. And then finally, it's an insult to this cohort because it means they they are inevitably going to feel like they cannot trust their results. And that's unfair on everyone. It's unfair on the people who really did work hard, people who really were talented, because they are going to be labelled as coming from a group of students to whom we were exceptionally generous. And they're going to have a tough time at university because universities are not going to quite trust their results. They may have to take some additional entrance exams in the future. So in other words, when you're being generous in this way, you are actually undermining the system and letting people down. It's not generous. It's it's a form of fraud. How much did we love Tim Gavin? Can't remember his own A-level grades, Williamson. I did no. think. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, my, mine are tattooed on my soul. I mean, you know, how did I miss that third A, Tim Stanley? I mean, it, it's still lurking there somewhere in Lincolnshire, isn't it? But it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. I remember once I applied for a job and I didn't put my school grades on it. And they said, why haven't you put your school grades? I said, because I went to university. Why do you mm. need to know? I went to Cambridge. So why do you need to know how many GCSEs I got? So I can, it doesn't It doesn't really matter after a certain stage. And that makes me even more suspicious that he won't be honest about it. Because there's actually no shame in, in any kind of grade if you've gone on to become education secretary. Surely that's, that's the big tick in life. That shows you're intelligent if you've made it thus far. What's he got to hide? Yes, I think I think it's what it's what he's got to hide, isn't it? Really, I think and what that, it was um, in, what he took—that's what I want to know. <laughs> Perhaps these inflated grades are, are Gavin's revenge for getting sort of <laughs> two two Ds and a U. But isn't isn't part of the problem, Tim? Is if you're like us and you're in the trade of commenting, if you object to rampant grade inflation, then then you know the opposition can say, "Oh, you're being horrible to kids." who deserve to have smiles on their faces. You know, they've had such a terrible year. But as you say, grade inflation is not a victimless crime, is it? Like economic inflation, it will actually hurt people. And if you, I mean, if you actually look at some of these, you know, these grades, I mean, there was a a pass rate of a 99.5%. I mean, never mind who got a B, who was the 0.5% who failed? Where, Where is that person we want to meet him. I mean, well, they must have spelt their name wrong. <laughs> I don't know what they did. And <laughs> almost 50% of papers got an A or an A star. Mm. So I've heard from friends who work in universities that they were already having enough trouble distinguishing between the better candidates because they just had this sort of absolute blizzard of of straight A's. But now it's going to be, you know, almost every other applicant. And as you say, if you are the academic person who's really done their work striving for good grades, I mean, I, I you know, I can imagine the kind of, you know, 17, 18 year old Alison would have felt absolutely mortified if you'd worked that hard. And then you realise that, you know, whatever it was, you know, a third or a half of your peer group who hadn't worked particularly hard had just been gifted these grades. So so it's demoralising, isn't it? But I think that Gavin Williamson is a weak Secretary of State up against extremely strong and belligerent uh, teaching unions. But last year, Gavin Williamson was so worried about grade inflation that he imposed this off-call algorithm on the results that had been marked, you know, the the grades that teachers had come up with. And then, of course, there was an embarrassing U-turn when talented pupils in below-average schools fell victim to this very blunt statistical instrument. And, you know, the results were rapidly rescinded and pupils awarded their highest predicted grades. How much does your friend Boris bear this, some responsibility for this? Because it seems to me there's Boris, the crowd pleaser, not wanting to upset parents, much nicer to have everyone saying, jolly good, we've got all these, you know, marvellous grades. But it seems to me essentially unconservative what's happened. 
I suppose you might ask, what's the alternative? What other way could they have examined them? And having accepted that because of the disruption to teaching, uh, grades would have fallen, would you have written off a generation by allowing them to be graded so low compared to others? So you, you could throw it back in our faces and say, so what's your alternative? But I think you have to put this in a long-term context, which is that grade inflation has been happening a long time, really since about the mid-80s. It's been ticking up. And the problem is that there's this sort of paradox of, on the one hand, we want things to be rigorous. On the other hand, in theory, the more rigorous they are, the better students should perform. So it's not, it's not unbelievable that grades will get better as you are teaching better, if that makes sense. Mm. So how much is that slow? And it really is almost unbroken since 1985, how much is that slow increase in A grades down to us being too generous? Or is it because actually schooling got better? And as the exams have become more rigorous, we can trust them. I don't know. My, my point is that every government has faced that question. And every government has sort of come down on the side of generosity. And this government, given the special circumstances of the coronavirus, I'm not surprised it did what it did. I'm just saying that you you compared it I think very sensibly with economic inflation in the mm. same way that there is a short term boost that comes from spending more money in the long run people lose confidence in your currency and it becomes worthless and likewise there is a short term sense of oh good so we went through this horrible thing but you know the good thing is is that everyone got an A and in the short run we feel better about ourselves in the long run there aren't the places you're going to have to actually make university tougher people's qualifications not going to be trusted by employers you have devalued the currency of exam results. Yes, and I think what dismayed me in particular is we think of the left as being responsible for dumbing down, you know, the all-must-have-prizes culture. And I see the Conservatives as being on the side of high standards, maintaining the integrity of the exam system, not this, you know, free-for-all, let's give out smarties and make everyone happy. So that does bring me back to Boris. Um, Tim, you're, you're, you're sticking by the PM, aren't you, through, through some fairly turbulent times. Uh, tell me why. Tell me why. Uh, partly because I think the, the times are turbulent and you've got to be fair to a man who's going through unprecedented times that none of us could have second-guessed what would happen or what one should do. So I think you've got to cut him some slack. Uh, but also, uh, I'm going to be honest and say that I, I believe loyalty is a virtue. I mean, it's difficult as a colonist. Because obviously you've got to be honest. Mm. And when someone does something wrong, even if you're personally loyal to them, you've got to be, you've got to put your readers first and say to the readers, this person's getting it wrong. And I have done that in my columns, but equally, I still take the view that this is the man who got Brexit done. I think he's the only man who could have got Brexit done under the bizarre conditions created by Theresa May. Yes. yes. And therefore he's he's still owed the benefit of the doubt. And also I have some philosophical. I, I, sympathy for him. And I don't I don't mean necessarily the pre-pandemic Boris. I actually quite like elements of the big government post-pandemic Boris. Uh, I'm not a libertarian, not that I'm pro many of the restrictions, but it's complicated. I'm, I'm waiting and, and watching and seeing, but I don't think, I do think loyalty is a virtue. And I, I still want to, I want him to succeed. I don't want to write him off. But you were saying to me when we were talking about this last night, not specifically about Boris, but about Gavin Williamson, about the kind of the lies that are being told. I mean, blatant mm, sort of breathtaking, yeah. clearly not true things that they tell us, which actually make me gasp sometimes. You think, are we supposed to seriously supposed to swallow that? So do you have moments where you think, you know, is this what I voted for? I'm very cynical about voting. I don't blame people who don't do it. Uh, I, I did it and I have done it for very specific reasons, which is my support of Brexit. And when another election comes around, you have to recalculate all over again. But I remember Tony Blair lying about Iraq. Uh, I've, I've lived through a number of brilliant <laughs> whoppers, really, really <laughs> yes. huge, great stinking catches have landed on my desk. And so I assume the governments are lying to me. I assume as a baseline that governments are lying and incompetent. And if you get out of that something you want, if they can somehow, uh, either through intention or through uh, trying to just keep the voters on board, if they give you something they want, that's a plus. But I, I'm afraid I, I, I'm nearly, I'm approaching 40. And I've, at this stage in my life, I've just got a very low opinion of public service. 
So what's going to happen next year with exams? Because Williamson's already signalling, making sort of mealy-mouthed about, oh, you know, we couldn't possibly go back to normal exams like any, any normal country. And they're talking about possibly, you know, changing the grading system to disguise the fact that they are going to have to rein in the grade inflation, aren't they? And, and do, do you think Williamson will survive? I mean, I've read rumours about Kemi Badenoch, who I think is terrific. She's my local MP in the place we've moved to, possibly. Nadim Zahawi moving in. I mean, can GAV survive at education, do you think? It does feel like it needs uh, Nadim Zahawi, it needs someone with some experience of running almost a war machine to turn that department around. But I I think this is the most important point of all, actually, is that there has been a long running campaign in this country against exams. And a lot of teachers and left-wingers and many parents and many kids don't like exams and they Mm. want coursework. And actually, what you've seen this year is the model for some people of what they want education to look like in the future. And this is what COVID is doing to us. It's a disruptor. It's also an accelerator. This was the trend. We were moving towards less reliance upon exams, more upon coursework. And I think it could go either way. You could get someone in who says, right, we're bringing back the exams. They're going to be rigorous. Or... I actually think more likely you could have someone who comes in and says, what can we learn from the last two years? What have we learned? (laughs) And politically, uh, isn't it a win-win to say we're going to make things easier and more reliant upon coursework? It's what teachers want. It's what many kids think they want, what many parents think they want. So I wouldn't be surprised if what we've done in the last couple of years actually becomes almost the, the direction of travel in British education. Well, listening to you, I'm thinking what you're saying is probably true and I hate it. So, uh, well, I'm moving to Iceland. Obviously, that's the future. (laughs) What do you think the future is? Oh, honestly, Tim, I don't know. I think we just got to hang out with our dogs and just ignore them, don't we really? I think COVID is the gift. As you said, COVID is the, the golden gift to excuses. You know, on Planet Normal, we've been campaigning about GPs uh, going to this, um, whatever Matt Hancock called it, teleconsult or, oh, you know, the sort of ghastly forms where, you, you know, you fill in the e-consult form only to be told to dial 111 and then, you know, the listeners call 111 and then they're told to go and fill in the e-consult form. So they're caught, you know, caught in a perpetual sort of Kafkaesque. What was that? Was that play? We Clow, isn't it? That's Sartre, isn't it? Not, not Kafka. But absolutely. And I think that it was always the intention. Something you wrote about in your column this week as well, wasn't it? Was universities where we are, you know, seeing seeing this reluctance to resume normal operations. Very interesting survey this week from from the Medical Research Council saying that 71% of British 16 to 24-year-olds have had COVID. So this vast, you know, this this university cohort, I know that from anecdotally from my own son's friends, they've all had COVID. But I also know from my son, Tim, that he has been in, allegedly been in his second year at university and it has been absolutely rotten. He isn't a moaner. He's generally very positive, but just the lack of any kind of tuition, a few really ghastly sort of Zoom encounters, none of what you and I would think of as being uh, a university education. Now, Gavin Williamson did hint, I, I think Gavin was showing signs, belated signs of growing a pair, saying that perhaps fees should be cut if universities are basically not going to do what they're paid to do. Do, do you think that's a hollow threat or do you think that we might see the government cracking down? I don't know, although the public still contributes vast amounts of money over and above the tuition fees. I think it's very sad that as universities have become more expensive for the individual, the experience itself has been lessened. And part of the point of going of university is going away from home, having one-on-one tuition. There's a certain, certain romance to education. And uh, I think it's very sad that the more that we've privatized these things and, and treated people like a consumer, ironically, they've, they've had less of that experience of it. And it's, it's treated treated them much more like customers and it's operated more like a business. One thing I'm critical about the centre-right is they always think businesses are paragons of efficiency and service. They're not. <laughs> I mean, anyone who's got a boiler knows that. Uh, they're, <laughs> yes. they're not. When anything goes wrong, if they can fob you off, they will. And likewise, the more that university has become like a corporation, I feel that the less it has been human in its response to people and the, and the less the quality of the experience. 
Something that's been bothering me, Tim, is this, uh, I was driving along in the car the other day. I couldn't bear to listen to Radio 4's Any Answers, which is always the sort of, you know, makes thought for the day look like <laughs> not smug. And I turned on Heart, uh, 70s Hits, which you'll be, it was before you were born, but it was, you know, it was great, <laughs> me bopping along. And then this advert came on and it was basically targeted at young people don't miss out, get your jab, you know, marvellous, marvellous, you can you can go everywhere. And I realised that they'd had those ads ready to go even before the JCVI, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, had said that we could press on and vaccinate 16 and 17-year-olds. But I think there's a real question mark over that now, Tim, not not just because there's, you know, that, that we're hearing that the Delta variant is endemic and so many of the cohort, that cohort have got it. But something that leapt out at me this morning is Professor Adam Finn, who's on the JCVI, and he said the UK should vaccinate 16 and 17-year-olds slowly as there is a, quote, delicate balance between benefits and risks And I think that's putting it mildly. And it really bothers me that the government may press on with this vaccinating younger people. And there is a slight risk, which everyone's slightly embarrassed to talk about. What do you think? I can't comment on the risks because I I just don't know well enough uh, what the probabilities are and and what the health risks are. I think it's an unofficial no COVID strategy. It's zero COVID strategy. It's a different way of achieving it, which you try to vaccinate it out or at least vaccinate the, the variants we have out so that if there is a new variant, you then vaccinate against that one. But essentially, it's a form of zero COVID, right? Mm, it is. And I'm not sure how sustainable that is. I'm not sure how realistic that is. But I think it's so interesting that we, we've moved on dramatically from 60% and then we will, we will look at treating this like a regular disease to try and eliminate it. That, to me, is the interesting shift. Yes, I think it's sneaky, and I think that strategy is starting to unravel quite fast, given that the vaccinated do have some protection, obviously, against serious disease, but are still getting it mm-hmm. and are, you know, according to Public Health England, are still transmitting it. So, it, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense, I don't think, putting these under pressure. I'm Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom. I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious. You never know who will report you, who will denounce you. Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control. Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this. As we've been talking about education, I thought that I would talk to a brilliant teacher to get her take on what's been going on. In fact, Catherine Birbal Singh is a head teacher of Michaela, the free school that she founded in Wembley Park in 2014. Now, it's fair to say that Catherine is a controversial figure in education circles. She was born in New Zealand. Catherine spent her childhood in Toronto, where her dad was a university English professor. The family moved to England for a year when Catherine was 15 and she attended a comprehensive, which she recalled was so modern, we call teachers by their first names. You might recall, Tim, that in 2007, she began writing a blog about school life under the pseudonym Miss Snuffy. There was an editor who suggested she turn it into a book and he put her in touch with Michael Gove and Steve Hilton, who was then David Cameron's aide forward slash Rasputin. 
And they invited her to make a speech at the 2010 Tory party conference, which caused a huge stir. Catherine's traditionalist views on education, a belief that children benefit from rigour and discipline, drew a huge amount of abuse on social media. She was personally threatened and the governors of the school where she was teaching met to, quote, discuss her position. Birbal Singh ultimately resigned and went on to found her free school, Michaela, where she puts into practice her theory that disadvantaged children will thrive in the same conditions that wealthy kids get at private school. 2021 is when Michaela's first ever group get their A-level results this week and their places at university. So I began by asking Catherine, did she have any concerns that almost 50% of papers had been graded A or A star? Yeah, the thing is, is that there's a reason why we normally have national exams. They don't have any kind of bias to them. And I know teachers get very upset when they say that there might be bias when they're giving out grades, but you can't help that. It's impossible. And it's very hard to get it right. Sometimes a child just has a good day on an exam. Sometimes they have a bad day. So when you're trying to predict, it's hard to think, well, am I predicting if they have a good day or if they have a bad day or if they have a normal day? And what's the difference? Sometimes as well, children have a good night or a bad night before they sit their exam. Mm. So, so much happens on the day itself. And then also there's the paper. Every time any exam is sat, teachers are waiting outside the exam hall so that they can run in afterwards and take a look. And then they see the paper and they say, yes, yes. this came up. Oh no, this came up. Mm. And they know what the kids are good at and what they're mm. not so good at. Now, none of that is happening when you're doing it yourselves. So that will explain, obviously, why there has been the grade inflation. Uh, teachers love their kids. And so they're more likely to think, well, I'm going to imagine it's a good day. I'm going to imagine it's a good paper. And that can make a big difference, you know? Yes, I, I can see that. And of course, it's human nature that you're a teacher, aren't you? And you obviously are very invested in the children's success. So how on earth are you going to mark exactly. someone with sort of ruthless objectivity? Yeah, exactly. I do understand why people in education get annoyed with the kind of criticisms because it's been a nightmare to try and survive. Mm -hmm. So the best thing that we can do moving forward, frankly, is to have national exams. Last year, this year proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the best way to uh, judge our children is with exams because it's clean. You know where you stand with them and you can feel really proud. You know, I felt very awkward about saying, oh, look, look at these amazing grades that our kids have got. I mean, they have got good grades and they are amazing. But mm. you, you'll notice in my tweets, I very much pushed the idea of being so proud to have helped form who they are over the last seven years yes. and how they're now going off to university and how proud I am for that, as opposed yes. to look at their brilliant grades, you know, because I, I find it very awkward. I also find it very odd the way in which nobody seems to talk about that. <laughs> Everybody just acts as if it's a normal year. And it, and it certainly isn't. No, I mean, I mean, my concern, I suppose, is we've heard about many children, particularly more disadvantaged children. You, you have some of those, obviously, at Michaela. They've been missing out on education during lockdown, some unable to access online learning, very difficult conditions in the home. Yet here we have these record exam grades. Isn't the danger that this bumper exam crop will obscure the huge damage that's been caused to children's education during the pandemic? I think when it comes to kind of the top kids going off to university, that won't necessarily apply because they're the kinds of kids who work really hard on their own anyway. Mm -hmm. And they're older, you know, they're 17 years old. It, it's a little different. But for the kids who aren't going off to the top universities and also for the kids, just younger kids, um, it's definitely the case that um, they haven't learned anywhere near as much as they should have. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't think you can underestimate the damage that's been done. And everyone's just trying to sweep that under the carpet. Everyone pretends that online learning is the same as being in a classroom. It's an absolute nonsense. Children need to see a teacher in front of them and be inspired by them to work hard for them. And so you have a stay-at-home mum who's really on top of you. Hmm. There's maybe one or two children in the house. And she's there making you watch your online video, helping you with the work afterwards that you've got to do, buying you extra resources yeah. and really supportive. Then actually, that's fine. But not one of our kids has that, right? Not one. Not <laughs> we don't one. have a single family no. like that. Most of them will be in families with lots of children there. 
Lots will have families who don't necessarily speak English. Lots, you know, there won't be any books at home. There won't be any support. Mm. So then it's just up to the child. And if you're 13, 14 years old and you have the option of sitting on your smartphone on Snapchat or Instagram, or you can go online. Well, which one are you going to choose? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's um, that that's why those children need strict schools that are able to hold them to account. But it's impossible for a teacher to hold a child to account online. You can't test them. You can't quiz them. All the stuff's just right in front of them. You can't say, right, close up all your books, pop quiz. Mm-hmm. Right, we're going to go. Boom, 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 boom. And then you see whether or not they know the stuff. So you have no real data coming in from the kids to let you know how they're doing. And, you know, having detentions, all that sort of thing, it helps the kids hold themselves to account and build habits in themselves that will last over a lifetime. A lot of times, good schools in areas where children aren't necessarily going to get that same support from their families, what good schools do is they sort of act like their parents in many ways. So when they set detentions, when they have those conversations about how you've let me down and so on, it's because the child won't necessarily access that at home. And when they are at home all the time, you're not able to do that in school. So we tried to do that on a phone call. Um, But obviously, that's very different to having all your teachers see you every day all the time at school. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've massively struggled with is attendance, for instance, because we used to have really great attendance. And while we're still at about 90 percent, those seven, eight percent who would have been there, because normally we would have had 98 percent, for instance, they now have excuses not to come into school. Mm -hmm. And um you'll find that attendance is a disaster across the country. Like that's us 90%. I'm t- we're doing very well. Um, you you mm. will find in some schools that, you know, they'll have 60 or 70%. And that's mm. because children have now got used to being at home all the time. And because their parents perhaps are, are not at home or not that interested or just weaker yeah. in terms of their ability to get the children out of bed, th- because the routine's been lost now, the, the children think, well, you know, oh, I might have COVID. I'm not going in. I don't feel very well today. Oh my goodness, you might have COVID. You know, like it's just, (laughs) we have given them excuses not to push themselves to their absolute limit. And we're pretending that everything is fine. As a country, I mean, we're pretending. And and this, what they call the pandemic, you know, this dreadful one child in the year group not feeling very well, you know, everyone has to down tools and out. I mean, that's caused chaos, hasn't it? Absolute chaos. And teachers, Teachers are being pinged out all over the place, mm. even though there's a wall between them. You know, like yeah. <laughs> people Ser- are being seriously. pinged out. They don't have COVID. Yes, all the time. It's impossible because running a school isn't just about your teachers. I've got my caretakers. I've got my kitchen staff. I've got a whole bunch of people. I'm running a little business. That's mm. what I'm doing. And it's impossible to run it with the way government have fixed things, you know? Like, and I get it. I, I kind of don't want to blame government because I, yeah. I do understand why they've made the decisions they've made. I even understand why it is they didn't have national exams this year. I get it because parents would have gone insane. And government is always about getting votes, obviously. They're not going to make a decision that's extremely unpopular. And I worry that next year the same thing will happen. But hey, other countries managed, okay? So Germany last year went ahead with its formal national exams. Mm. Spain, I learned yesterday, has barely closed schools and went forward with its exams. And Norway, Catherine, the Prime Minister of Norway, said she regretted closing Norway's schools. She said, I'm sorry, I panicked. And I thought, how refreshing to hear somebody. And she said, I would not make that choice again. So so you could argue that, that exams could well have gone ahead. Well, remember, I said, I understand why politicians are making those decisions because they care about votes. I didn't say I understand because they care about the children. (laughs) If they were (laughs) thinking about the children, yeah, we should have kept exams. Of course we should have kept exams. Because ultimately, it's not about making it easy for them to get good grades. Mm. It's about making it so that they build the habits that they need to succeed in life. Mm. That's what people don't seem to understand. The point about school is not to get brilliant grades. The point about school is to become a, a great human being, to become the kind of adult who's going to be able to make a success of their lives. And what I worry about is that yeah, they might come out with great grades, but then they go off. And when they're in their adulthood, well, what kinds of people are they? I mean, that's what matters, really. I don't see my job as headmistress as getting kids the best grades. I want to make them into the best kinds of people. Mm. And what all of this nonsense has done is that it's undermined us in every possible way in terms of how I run my school. Yeah, well, I think I'd rather have you running the Department of Education than than someone who shall remain nameless. In the fallout from the Black Lives Matter protest last year, 
you said that talking about white privilege all the time actually undermines black children because it tells them that the establishment is against them. What are your thoughts about these calls to decolonize the, the curriculum? Well, I think it's appalling. Uh, I think the people who campaign are well-meaning and I don't think they realize the damage they're doing to our inner city children. You know, a rose would smell as sweet. Mm. If you don't understand what that means, then you're going to look a bit stupid when you're in that business meeting and somebody makes reference to something Shakespearean, which they'll do constantly without even realizing. And um, you aren't able to connect. You know, Mm. somebody says, Mm. oh, gosh, it's just like Romeo and Juliet. And you say, who's Romeo? And now your listeners might think, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows who Romeo is. I can tell you for nothing there are loads of kids who don't, okay? Yeah. This is what I find as a general rule. If we haven't taught them it, they don't know it. Um, and and so for us to encourage schools to stop teaching this sort of stuff, why would we want to do that to these children? Shakespeare has been influencing literature for 400 years. And so the authors that they're saying, the more modern authors, that they might say, let's teach this instead. Well, they were all influenced by Shakespeare. Maya Angelou, for instance, knows Mm. Shakespeare inside out. I have Maya Angelou quoted on my wall in my office. So it's not like I'm against Maya Angelou. But I do think we need to teach Shakespeare before Maya Angelou. And Maya Angelou herself would say, you need to teach Shakespeare before her. I believe in black authors. I am a black author. I don't (laughs) think you should teach my books before you teach Shakespeare. I mean, I just... You know, and the thing is, once you've taught Shakespeare and Dickens and various others, then when they're 25, they're going to read my books and they'll get them because they've read that stuff beforehand. Secondary school is meant to give them the basics. That's what we don't seem to understand. And then they go off and do amazing things with that. You know, it's the same with maths. You don't say, let's do trigonometry before you teach times tables. It's mad. (laughs) Identity politics uh, has so kind of brainwashed everyone that they think to themselves, Black children cannot understand Shakespeare, but Shakespeare belongs to the black child as much as it belongs to the white child Mm. and that they are all British together. And this idea that white children are more British than black children is just wrong. And it's the kind of thing that the National Front would say. And unfortunately, there are extreme leftists who, who match up with what the with what the extreme right say, you see. I always say it's a bit of a circle, Mm. right? So you've got the extreme left on one end of the circle and the extreme right on the other end of the circle. And what you want to be is at the top of the circle um, where you're far away from both extremes. And unfortunately, the extreme left don't see that they match perfectly with the extreme right with their identity politics and their refusal to teach children traditional things. There are so many educationalists who will privately tell me this stuff. They would never say this stuff out loud because they can't. They can't. They're worried about losing their jobs. They're worried about being hated by their friends. And that's the thing about the power of culture. And we need to hold on to our culture as much as we can in this country and um, try to stop it from going down that American route because it's scary what's happening in America, really scary. And unfortunately, it's the progressives in this country who are pulling us down that road. You're the most passionate advocate for these things, and it really lifts my heart to hear you say that. So Kevin Collins, who was the catch-up czar for schools, he he resigned in June saying that the $1.4 billion cash the government had promised over three years for schools was not credible to bring about a successful recovery from the pandemic. I think it worked out at about 50 quid per pupil per year. I think Sir Kevin was asking for more like $15 billion What do you say now going forward? What do schools and kids need to make this recovery from this incredibly bruising period in their young lives? It's not about more money. It's about a a change of attitude. If we get all our teachers standing at the front of their classrooms, desks in rows, excellent behaviour systems where children are being held to account, where you're expecting the most out of kids. You know, you expect them to listen in class and not speak when the teacher hasn't asked you to speak. I know that sounds basic, but I promise you it's not happening. (laughs) And if we get that to happen, and if you give them lots of homework and support with that homework, and it's the kind of homework, it needs to be stuff that's been taught in lessons. You don't give them stuff that they haven't seen. You've got to give them stuff that they are then repeating at home, which they can do without the support of their parents, which then makes it part of their habit and in drills it into their heads so that they know it. And then they come back the next day. And that means you can move on. It means you can cover more stuff quickly. It means that they're behaving and they're actually learning in their lessons. You inspire them with committed and hardworking teachers. If we can do that, 
It's not about more money. It's about a change of mentality in terms of what we're expecting from our children. Now, there are schools that are already doing this. There are schools that are doing this really well. We just need that happening across our schools. If I were that czar person in charge, I would actually want to get a busload of these kinds of people who get this. And I'd want to go around visiting various schools to change their mentality about what they can expect from their kids in their classrooms. What he would have been thinking about doing was putting on some extra lessons after school, putting on some Saturday morning classes. And that's fine. But you know what? The kids who show up to that are the kids who are already working hard at home. Right. Mm -hmm. So those aren't I mean, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's bad. It's fine. But it's not really going to make a difference. What will make a difference is changing how people think in schools. And that's hard because that's about culture and culture takes time to change. But it can be done. The problem is that we haven't got anybody in charge of making it happen. You just mentioned if you were that catch-up czar, do you have any desire to be in education from the other side of the fence, perhaps through politics? I saw that in July last year, you confirmed that you'd applied to become the government's new mm. social mobility czar. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, well, I applied for that because that's something I can do on the side. I love my job. I love being a headmistress. I love our children. I love our staff. I wouldn't want to leave that just because I love my job. Um, and I certainly would never want to become a politician. My goodness, I don't know how they do it. And I take my hat off them, which is why I'm slightly reluctant to criticize them, because I think to myself, my goodness, I would never want to do that job. So, uh, you know, I, I get that they're in a difficult position. The position of chair of the Social Mobility Commission is about having a commission with commissioners where we look at what works in terms of enabling social mobility, I could do that along the side while I'm also still being my normal job as headmistress. And if I were to get it, it'd be really exciting because it would give me the chance to tell everyone what I've found so far works, mm. find out more about what works, and then just tell the world. I mean, wouldn't it be great? And it's exactly what I just said. I'd want to put everybody in a bus and go around and tell everyone. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't be in a bus, but I'd, I'd have more of a platform you know, to just let people know. Because a lot of these people who are doing it badly are well-meaning. They want to get it right. They do. And they love the children. And they work really, really hard for them. So it, it isn't a question of teachers being lazy or stupid and so on. It really isn't. And I think some people on the right can often think that they're wrong about that. Mm. It's just that the wrong ideas are out there. And we've got to get the right ideas percolating through. And, you know, I hope if I were to get that position, it would just enable me to do that a little bit more, that's all. Can we end up with some examples of this social mobility, looking at the year now at Michaela, who've got their A-level results and are going off to university? Can you think of some kids who, without all this rigour and support and all that amazing input from your teachers, can you tell us about a couple of kids who have done things with their academic future that they would never have done without the kind of teaching you espouse? Yeah, well, I think got all of them. But I mean, there's this one girl, she's going off to Cambridge. And when we were first opening, so this is our first cohort going off to university now. And we didn't have a school. Yes. I just had an idea. And I was going around on the street with flyers, trying to pick up children in hairdressers and things. I'd run into hairdressers and say, <laughs> does anyone have a child in year six here? Come to our school next year. You know? <laughs> and um, one of these mums I met, and then I went to their flat and I sat with this girl and her parents trying to encourage them to send their child to us. And they were sort of going, well, you know, what is this school? And I said, you know, you've got to believe me. We're going to do brilliant things with her, et cetera. Mm. And she came to us. <laughs> and then amazingly, her mother came to work at the school as a science technician. And she's still our science technician. And her daughter is now going off to Cambridge. And it was just a wonderful, just a wonderful thing. I think about another boy of ours who came to us in year seven. He just wrote us the most wonderful email saying how much he loves his teachers and how he's so grateful to us for the, mm. for the young man he has become. It's not just about the grades and so on. It's about who he is. And he's going off to Imperial. You know, his mother is a cleaner and he just lives with just his mum. They're from Eastern Europe. And it's amazing, really. These are children who, lots of them, they're the first ones to go to the university. It's life transforming for them and for their families and also for their communities. We mustn't forget about the impact of culture and what it shows is possible. And then other children look to them and think, I'm going to be like you. 
it's just so exciting. And that's why I love my job and I would never want to leave it because <laughs> you have that human touch every day where you see the difference it makes to these children and their lives. So, yeah, there, there's reason for hope. It's exciting. And I do think this government, as much as I am highly critical of many things they have done, um, <laughs> I do think that they get it. You know, Boris Johnson, and I know, you know, he can be very frustrating at times. He came to visit our school when he was London mayor and he loved what he saw. He loved it. Mm -hmm. And he loved the fact that uh, one of our children corrected him in a history lesson. Oh, really? He came in saying X, Y and Z. Yes. And one of our children said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> it was actually this year. And, um, and he said, no, 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 no. I'm right. Actually, I'm Boris Johnson. And then he went off. And we looked it up and realised that our kid was right. And <laughs> That's so good. And it was just lovely. Michaela won Eton nil. Yes, indeed. Wow. Tim, imagine having Catherine Birbel sing as, as your head teacher. She's, she's quite something, isn't she? She is. She's great. I think in any other generation, she'd be almost a civil rights hero, like sort of a Booker T. Washington figure. Mm. Uh, I admire her because she's a doer. I like people who not just say something's broken, but they actually get in and, and try to fix it themselves by setting up their own school. And one thing I've never understood about her is the hate she generates and gets uh, from people who seem to think she's sadistic or cruel or something when the goal of I mean, what she does isn't sadistic or cruel, but also its goal and intention is to help poor kids. And I think that the criticism that she draws just reminds us that there is a culture war at the heart of education, which goes mm. back to what we were talking about mm. at the beginning with exams, with what should exams look like in the future. There is, there is a war going on over the best way to teach kids. And the thing about Catherine is that a lot of what she says is bleeding obvious. Yeah, She just says that we all know in our gut stuff that we know in our gut is right that people need to be disciplined, engaged. The stuff she was saying about homework should, should reflect what was done in the lesson, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's amazing how much our society has forgotten and how much what we call reform is about remembering obvious things. Yes, the thing that I suppose she speaks to me, really, I, I came from a home without very many books. So I was very dependent on my teachers to introduce me to all those things that Catherine mentions, you know, Shakespeare and so on. And what I see now, which worries me, upsets me, is children from my kind of background who are subject to this tyranny of low expectations. I mean, as Catherine said, Shakespeare's for everyone. Jerusalem, the national anthem, are for everyone. I'd have loved to have been taught by her. And I think she is a, a, amazingly inspiring. It made me think of some of the exams that I got into. I had um, a wonderful history teacher. And I remember, I think he was just starting out in the profession and we went into the A-level Tudors and Stuarts paper. Oh, Tim, I turned it over and uh, all <laughs> that there was there, the question on the entire Tudor period was the foreign policy of Henry VII. I mean, it was never has another individual made more of three lines in their notes than I did of the foreign policy of Henry VII. So, you know, it brings it all back. But I, I love Catherine. And as you say, she's talking complete sense, cutting through all the cant. And But didn't you think she was also quite interesting about politicians as well? You know, that, you know, they're not really thinking about children, they're thinking about votes. Yeah, but she was sympathetic as well, which I thought was interesting. She said, I wouldn't want their job. And, and she is right. It, it is tough. And as she said, ultimately, the public gets what the public's voted for. And if the public wants to be given an easy time, then politicians will happily give us an easy time. Uh, whereas what she's saying, her, her whole philosophy is about investment. It's a very, very old fashioned, dare I say, Protestant work ethic approach, the idea that you you invest in the long run so that you get long-term benefit, you, you delay gratification. This is real basic Western conservatism. And it's not really there in conservatism anymore, uh, which is, is much more about the satiation of desire, I'm afraid. Conservatism has become about tax cuts and enjoying yourself and the individual opportunity and all that sort of thing. Whereas what, where she's coming from, that, that's, a, that's a much older cultural route I mentioned Booker T. Washington. You know, a lot of um, civil rights stuff in the United States, late 19th, early 20th century, was focused on education. That's partly because black people were locked out of politics. There's no denying that. But it was about self-improvement and the idea that if you can't sort of beat the system, if you can't radically change the system, then 
advance on your own terms and become as good as anyone else. And so, so the things that people are concerned with, they should be concerned with. They should be concerned with helping poor kids. They should be concerned with helping ethnic minorities. I just think they're doing it the wrong way. And I think the way she does it, does it better, which is to give them tools. I love that thing she said about she wants to create better people, to, to create good students. And of course, good students, good people tend, not always, but tend to then get good grades. So the grades become a way of judging that student's improvement and, and their personal development. But the goal is to create an individual that can stand on their own two feet. I think that's what everyone wants. As I say, it just feels like we've forgotten the obvious ways to do that. Yes, you said to me that you had been to a, I think, a state grammar, and then you did some teaching later after university in um in a private school, and you were struck by the difference in the standard. Well, this was my gap year. I, I went straight out of it. I was state for primary and grammar. And mm. don't get me wrong, my grammar school was very, very good. I mean, mm. you know, we did shorts and Anglo-Saxon sort of things. But going from a state system into a private system, the striking thing, first of all, was the cultural richness, particularly the role of religion in the school. That was that really, I think that was one of the many things that started to make me religious was seeing religion practice day to day in a school and the effect it has upon culture. But I was also really impressed, which might almost sound like it contradicts everything I've said, by the freedom teachers had. They didn't stick rigidly to a national curriculum. And I could see teachers really enjoying doing their own job. I mean, part of the problem was that you had to introduce national standards. You had to have a national curriculum to correct many of the things that were going wrong in the 60s and 70s. It was necessary to do. But there's no denying that it has resulted in a teaching to the test culture that is dispiriting and boring. And many teachers hate it because they went in to, to teach a certain subject. They're motivated by that. I know you did teacher training. You're very often drawn into teaching because you love English or love history. And then you find you have to teach this very narrow set of stuff. So I was really impressed in the private system by the freedom people had. I um, did teacher training and was sent out to my teaching practice. And on the very first day, the very first lesson of the first day in the classroom, when I was there with my, you know, inspired by Matthew Arnold, the great power of poetry. I was ready to be an evangelist for literature, Tim. And, um, one of the girls put a hand up and she said, what's your favourite flavour condom, miss? <laughs> <laughs> so that shut me up. That was WBA's put back, it put back in his basket, wasn't it? Tim, before we go to emails, can, can you briefly explain to me COP26? I don't, I, I don't even know what it is. I mean, Alok Sharma, who apparently is our climate change czar, drives a diesel car and has been traveling to about 30 countries and hasn't quarantined on the return for any of them. COP26, for or against? What do we think? Uh, it, it's probably necessary. Uh, I think there is a there is a climate crisis. I don't think it, well, I mean, I think the word emergency is, is definitely the right word to use. But it, it is difficult to justify, first of all, people meeting in person. Why isn't an environmental conference entirely ver- um, online? Yes. Um, and secondly, the problem with people like Alok Sharma, and it's the same with all of the uh, green elites, is that if flying in an aeroplane is going to lead to my kids drowning, then why do it 30 times in six months? (laughs) Either we really are an emergency and we need to stop all flying right now. And you as an elite, I'm assuming that Alak Sharma has access to the internet. I'm sure he can do these meetings online. Why does he fly? And that's that's a problem we keep coming back to with people pushing this particular agenda, which I'm very sympathetic to. And that's one reason why I quite admire Greta. I admire Greta Thunberg, because when she needs to go to a climate conference, she sails across the Atlantic <laughs> in a yogurt pot. And I admire that. She she lives by her own standards, by her own principles. I did notice today, actually, that ministers were already backtracking on plans to ban the installation of new gas boilers from uh, 2035. I mean, these are very ambitious targets, aren't they, for the Conservatives, if they if they want to keep people smiling and voting for them? The, the Prime Minister himself was quoted as saying that the hydrogen boiler would be, quote, £10,000 a pop. 
you you can't it's very difficult to persuade people to pay for that out of their own pockets presumably it would be heavily subsidized there's no denying that but that means the middle classes are going to end up having to fork out and on top of uh, other problems in terms of the cost of living things like housing and all that sort of stuff i think it's a big ask of the public Yes, I think so. I think um, I spent my my childhood in my grandparents' house using an outside loo, and I rather not rather not return <laughs> to that period because there were lots of spiders in the outside loo. Oh. On to our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, insightful, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you. Tim, here's one that caught my eye this week. This is from Michael. Here's some positive news for Planet Normal. I was at the theatre in Eastbourne last night for the first time in more than a year. I had thought of Eastbourne as Mask Central, but was pleasantly surprised. Although the staff were masked for your protection, only slightly more than half the theatre patrons turned up in masks, often with one of a couple masked and the other not. After sitting down, many took the masks off, presumably on the well-known principle that COVID only spreads while standing up. However, (laughs) many more kept them off during the interval. By the end, at least three quarters still had smiles visible on their faces. The lead actor in Magic Goes Wrong said at the end of the performance, how great to be back with live theatre. I agree. Is normality returning? Here's a nice story for you, Tim. My friends went to see Ray Fiennes doing, I think he's doing Elliot's Four Quartets, isn't he? And the friends said that they were unmasked, but there were various people in the theatre, lots of them, about 90% of people turned up for the performance in masks. But there was a moment in the Ray Fiennes performance when all the house lights came up and masses of people in the audience had actually taken their masks off. So what do you th- I wonder, Tim, whether how much of this is actual feeling what's socially acceptable rather than being afraid. What what do you think? Where possible, I will not wear a mask. Mm. And I've noticed that when I get on a train, at the beginning of that journey, I'm often the only person not wearing a mask. But by the end of it, about a half to three quarters of the mm. carriage have taken their masks off, which is one reason why I'm not wearing them. I hope no one listens to this because I'll get... <laughs> I'll, get hang- I'll get hate mail and probably a knock on the door from the cops. Not from Planet Normal listeners, you ain't. No, we're, no, we're, I know, I know. We're I, cheering you on. I, I hope this is. I hope this has really got really bad ratings because I'm genuinely. <laughs> I'm nervous about being thrown in jail. But uh, this is why I think that people who are against this sort of thing need to make a display of not doing it because it's only by show- giving other people the confidence to see that it's not normal. I miss seeing people's faces, and I and I like you. I studiously wear avoid wearing a mask whenever I you know wherever I can unless I'm aware that I'm with someone who's frightened. Tim have you got another email for us about the exam results? I have this one is from Malcolm who says quote there has been no credibility in our exam system since David Blunkett's success for all policy. I taught maths at a further education college for 15 years to students, many of whom have top GCSE grades. They could not do basic algebra or trigonometry or even fractions and forget basic calculus. So school teachers setting grades is just as bad. Until Gavin Williamson is sacked and we have someone with the guts to get real, then kids will get even less knowledgeable and we'll be letting them down again and again. And here's another letter on the same theme from Carl, who says, The latest idea is to replace letters with numbers in the grading system. That will shield the politicians from a firestorm of abuse when the next set of authentic exam results is published and the aberrations of the last two years are exposed for what they are. Of course, it will be done in the name of protecting the young people's interests. Very cynical car, but undoubtedly spot on. Um, This is from Roger. When I took A-levels in 1969, three A's were achieved by 5% of pupils. It entitled those pupils to access some Oxbridge colleges without interview and enrolment onto a medical or veterinary degree automatically. Are we now saying that approaching 50% of pupils are now at this standard? Looked at over a long period of time, it's obvious what's happened, isn't it? I have to agree. And finally, this email from Sue, who says, here's a new question for English A-level. What was the colour of Napoleon's white horse? (laughs) If you get this correct, you get A star. (laughs) 
This great inflation is a dog's dinner of a solution. Nobody wins. Of course, your teacher is going to give you great grades because it makes them look like brilliant teachers. And it stops helicopter parents from abusing you. I think the subject's going to run and run, Tim. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of righteousness, Tim, as one of our darling listeners, you'll know that each week we award a much sought after Planet Normal mug to our email of the week, one that's made you laugh or just nod along. And this week, it's your call. What do you think? I'm going to give it to Michael uh, for his email about mask wearing in Eastbourne. <laughs> uh, I think that was a really interesting observation to see in real time. Uh, people's attitudes changing. I would also obviously always give an A star to my dog, uh, who, who throughout this throughout this podcast has been trying to get a piece of turkey out of a Kong, which is the canine equivalent oh, I know, the of Kong. a mass GCSE. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid he's passed and he now wants to go out for a walk. Right, well, without, we better hurry up. Bertie, I'm really sorry. If you want a Planet Normal mug, ask Tim. Michael, please get in touch with us to claim your mug. Please send your address and email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. Tim, I've really appreciated your calm perspective as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bujard and Elliot Lampett and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.